This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, the WAPO, Washington Post, reports that the Democrats had their best day electorally since Barack Obama won re-election in 2012. And I will buy that. In 2017, two Democratic governorships were up and they both went to Dem. One was a gain. Three state legislatures were up for grabs. Two in New Jersey, one in Virginia. The Dems did well, held New Jersey, gained maybe even enough in Virginia to turn the state house blue. But in 2012, which was their last high point, let's check in on what the Dems accomplished. They won the presidency. Every senator was up for a vote, and the Dems increased their margin in the Senate. 435 members of Congress were up for a vote, and the Dems gained seats there, but didn't flip the chamber. In 2012, not only did 12 states elect governors, not two, but 86 legislative chambers, consisting of over 6,000 seats, were up. This time around, there were 220 seats in Virginia and New Jersey, and eight in Washington state. So saying this was the biggest win since 2012, while not untrue... It's like saying the trip Neil Armstrong made to Toronto in November of 1969 was the furthest he was away from home since he went to the moon in July of 1969. Look, I don't want to take credit away for the Democrats, but the media hypes every result. The media also says an anti-Trump backlash fuels a Democratic sweep in Virginia and elections across the country. Well, in New Jersey, it was definitely not as much an anti-Trump backlash as it was an anti-rejected Trump chief of staff, Chris Christie backlash. Trump is twice as popular nationally as Christie is popular in New Jersey. But of course, a deeply unpopular president hurts his party. And let's face it, there is no credible evidence that Trump in any way helps Republicans. So far, he has no legislative accomplishments. And his big wins include the fact that, I don't know, Colin Kaepernick's not starting for the Houston Texans. There was also that time he drove that big truck in the driveway. Oh, yeah, the Puerto Rican uh, paper throwing thing. That was good. He did well there. I do want to give the Democrats their due. But I don't know if this is a canary in a coal mine. Even if it is a canary in a coal mine, it's a really, really expansive mine and a somewhat unreliable canary, possibly even a parakeet, maybe a finch. Don't want to get into the identity politics of the bird. On the show today, my spiel was hijacked by Apple's new operating system, and you are the lucky beneficiary of that. But first, let's discuss life in the Trump era with two learned men. Okay, that sometimes means kind of old, but in this case, it means mostly wise, so, so wise. Thomas Mann and E.J. Dion and I spoke a couple of days ago, and we talked about stopping Trump. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I never do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to read the first page of the book, One Nation After Trump, by way of intro. Here we go. American democracy was never supposed to give the nation a president like Donald Trump. We have had more or less ideological presidents and more or less competent presidents. We have had presidents who divided the country and presidents whose opponents saw them as a danger to everything they believed in. But we have never had a president who aroused such grave and widespread doubts about his commitment to the institutions of self-government, to the norms democracy requires, to the legitimacy of opposition in a free republic, and to the need for basic knowledge about major policy questions about how government works. We have never had a president who daily raises profound questions about his basic competence and his psychological capacity to take on the most powerful and challenging political office in the world. We have never had a president who spoke more warmly of dictators than of democratic allies and whose victory came with the assistance of a foreign power that meddled in our election. We have, in short, never had a president who, from his first day in office, plainly showed that he had no business being president. That's called a grabber. The book is One Nation Under Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Two of its three authors are here, E.J. Dion and Thomas Mann. Norm Ornstein couldn't make it, though. He is a multiple guest of the gist. E.J. and Thomas Mann, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Good to be with you. Delighted to be with you. So, EJ, I will start with you, and I just underlined two phrases there. In the beginning, you said we've had more or less competent presidents, but then in the middle of that, you say that we've never had a president who daily raises profound questions about his basic competence. So is he the most competent, least competent, or what did you mean by that? Well, I would say least competent in a number of respects. Respect one is not having any real interest in policy and switching positions day to day. It happened uh, that on uh, Tuesday, he has a lovely meeting with uh, Lamar Alexander, or he talks about Lamar Alexander's compromise to keep uh, the Obamacare exchanges going strong. And then the next day, he tweets saying, oh, I like Alexander, but I can't sign off on this uh, bailout of the insurance companies. And then Alexander says he gets a phone call saying, oh, Trump didn't really mean to walk away from the agreement. So there's all of that. There is his cavalier attitude toward the presidency himself and the words the president uses. Uh, You're referring to the head of North Korea in the middle of a crisis as little rocket man. What does that do for the United States? I've said many times that even though I was no fan of Richard Nixon's, I think it's unfair to Nixon to compare him to Trump uh, because Nixon took his job seriously, took policy seriously was very willing to work with Democrats on a whole series of things. Trump just shows none of the capacity that other presidents have shown uh, for the job that he decided to run for. So, Thomas Mann, I'm not by uh, Constitution gloomy, and people will always say it's worse than it's ever been. As potentially harmful as everything Trump represents is, what he's actually done, he's been in office for less than a year, so far at least, has not been as bad as the, you know, thousands of Americans that George Bush sent to their death unnecessarily. I mean, would you agree with that, that he has the potential to be a disaster, but so far he's not even the worst within the last three presidents? Probably not. Mm -hmm. There's no question that incompetence 
played a role in limiting uh, the damage that he might have done. But perhaps more importantly is there are antibodies in the American democracy, and, and we have had resistance to Trump from day one, uh, led, I'd say, by the free press, which didn't distinguish itself during the campaign, but as uh, Dunn's remarkable coverage uh, since uh, uh, Trump was inaugurated as president. But the same can be said for for the courts, for the public bureaucracies, and importantly, for the citizenry more broadly. That is, there's been a resistance that has been heartfelt, but also more informed and politically sophisticated than we oftentimes see in protest movements and some institutionalization of of this that has constrained the president. So there's there's much to be said about that. Mike, could I come in on your good question? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you made one point that I completely agree with, which is we are fortunate so far that uh, Donald Trump hasn't committed us to war. Um, he's violated a whole series of norms. He's proposing this big tax bill. We don't have his tax return. Every recent president has let us see uh, his tax return. He has not separated himself from his own businesses. We have no idea the what kind of conflicts he's engaged in, but we do know that uh, his various businesses have made a lot of money since he's been president. Even, you know, whichever president you liked or disliked, this is really going far beyond what we've seen before. Yes, but once a norm is broken, is it never to be repaired again? Or might it be the case that Trump will do all these things and then, who knows, be impeached or face a huge election loss or actually get reelected and yet lead the country into ruin. And maybe we'll look back and say, wow, that was a bad idea, letting a guy run the Trump hotel at the same and collecting money on it at the same time his name was Trump and he lived a few blocks away. I mean, some countries reckon with their horrible past, Germany, they comport themselves now having acknowledged and the, the entire public life of Germany is thinking about what World War II meant. Yet right next to them in Austria, they've done very little of that. So what will be the effect of the norm breaking? Will it be a cultural wake-up call or, well, that one's done. Chaos now will reign. Well, I'm, I'm shocked that you're using Germany as a, as a source of solace. We did help the Germans uh, after World War II uh, put in place a, a more durable democratic system as we did with with Japan, but a lot of lives were lost before that happened. Right. I just mean to compare Germany and Austria, two very similar countries that were both in it with World War II, and one has really reckoned with it, and one hasn't. Or just look at Berlusconi in Italy, after Berlusconi, and he broke all those norms. I'm not saying the government and the country reformed itself, but they've elected prime ministers who've wanted to not go there. Well, you know, our book is actually quite optimistic in this, or hopeful, because... I agree, and I think we all three of us agree with part of your premise, which is we think Trump has given our whole system a jolt, yeah. which means that we appreciate norms in a way we didn't before. I think when we see somebody breaking them wholesale, I've said that the philosopher of the Trump era is Joni Mitchell. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, you're seeing the country react to that, and you're seeing a kind of political mobilization and a realization on the part of a lot of people that politics really matters. And so there are ways in which 
Trump could leave us better off if we react to him properly. But in the meantime, a whole lot of damage uh, is being done. And, you know, it is not automatic that all norms get restored after they're broken. We'll have a lot of work to do at the end of the Trump era. So I would say that I am hopeful, but I am worried in the short term. Yeah, I agree. It's not going to solve itself. But I wonder, are we relying on the sort of voter who, knowing what the evidence was at the time in 2016, said, I'm still going to vote for Trump. Are we relying on this person to say in 2020, if it comes to that, well, I now can exhibit the qualities of mind that where I'm saying that Trump didn't do a good job. I don't know. It seems like you talk about antibodies and thank God that competent people doing their jobs have stopped him from doing the worst he could do. But I don't think there are any actual antibodies in the electorate or with our electoral process. I I disagree, actually, although I think that the latest numbers I've seen about his approval rating showed at around 35%. Presidents with 35% approval ratings uh, don't get reelected. And you're seeing within his own constituency, there are people who have looked at the last nine months and said, this isn't what we counted on. Yeah. And Tom, I'll let you answer for a second. But as to the point, you know, incumbents with an approval rating of 35% don't get elected. True, but uh, candidates with a favorable rating of 39%, 35%, or 42% don't win states, but that was his approval rating in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. In other words, he's already broke the mold for being a guy who people don't like and somehow can win an election. It's called partisanship. It's called hyperpartisanship. Anyone who wins a major party nominee is guaranteed 40 to 45 percent of the vote. That's a reality in our tribal times. The real damage was done in the nomination process, which brings us back to how in the world did someone like Trump manage to get a major party nomination? And that's that's where... The question ought to be uh, directed because it puts the onus very much on what has been happening in the Republican Party over the last several decades. We sort of talk quite a bit in the book about how the Republicans prepared the way for Trump. We use the great line from John Kennedy's inaugural address that he who foolishly rides to power on the back of the tiger ends up inside. And the so-called Republican establishment ended up inside the tiger because when Trump was doing his birther thing and falsely saying that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, you know, some Republican leaders said, oh, we don't believe that. But they didn't rebuke Trump. We quote former House Speaker John Boehner saying basically, well, I don't believe this, but people are free to believe what they want. No, Republicans should have said, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. When a lot of Republicans were already appealing to a kind of rank nativism, even Republicans who had historically supported immigration reform were not willing to say, all right, we've got to roll up our sleeves and see if we get this done. They actually played along. When Donald Trump came along and offered his endorsement to Mitt Romney, Romney, who became a very articulate critic of Trump later on and deserves credit for that, was fawning when Trump showed up to give his endorsement in 2012. So this party, and then as Norman Tom argued in their book, and we recount some in our book, if you go back to what the Republicans were doing in the uh, Gingrich and Hastert years, 
in the Congress, they laid the groundwork for Trump. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I wonder, might the country be even worse off under Ted Cruz? Because he'd have almost all of Trump's policies. He certainly would want to get out of Paris, and he doesn't like the Iran agreement, and I see him trying to undo Obamacare in any way. So he has all of those policies, also a few more, like he's a debt ceiling absolutist, but he also has some competence. Um, you're giving us a choice between Trump and Cruz. <laughs> I am. Uh, <laughs> but he came in I'm second. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> Listen, uh, plenty to criticize Cruz for, and and he has earned his reputation as the most disliked member of the United States Senate. Nonetheless, he doesn't he doesn't violate the very nature of the of the system, the norms and and the rules and the constitutional provisions, I think he would have felt more constrained by than Trump. So between the two, uh, it's I, it's hard to imagine a, a less pleasant choice, but uh, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about a specific norm that you write about that I've been thinking about. Other politicians did not engage in the kind of broad promises that Trump routinely engages in. And maybe Trump does it out of strategy. I suspect he does it out of hubris and ignorance. But he would say it's going to be easy and I'm going to solve it and it's going to be great. And the limitation on other uh, politicians was not just norms like, oh, this isn't how politics is played. But they figured it would blow back on them. But I wonder, maybe Trump has exposed something about our modern time, that with the torrent of information that we're asked to imbibe and what what with the siloing of information, maybe this is the way to go in the future. Like, no one's going to check you. Just make as big a promise as you can and people vote their hopes. You know, I agree with half of that, and I think I disagree with the other half. The half I agree with is you. We I do, do like EJ in in this in this Q and A that you mostly agree with a portion of my premise. That is nice, and it's nice that you uh, enumerate which portion. Like I don't know that I've done that before, but it's kind of fun. Well, the, well thank you. It's uh, the portion I agree with is the siloing of information is a real problem, and we have a chapter in the book on the press and the truth and what we confront right now because of that. But I don't think making unkeepable promises helps you in the long run. And Trump may be may not be able to keep these promises, but the way he talks, he sounds more like he understands exactly how I feel. So I think that's part of it. But when push comes to shove, uh, when these voters go to the polls in the midterms and when they go to the polls four years from now, People are very aware of their own circumstance and their own economic circumstance. And if all of these promises Trump made go unbroken, if this voter does not feel that Trump has changed things, sure, some of the most ideological voters and some of the most partisan voters will stick with Trump. But the ones who swung to him out of protest or anger are not going to stick with him if he doesn't keep these promises. The book is One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. Norman Ornstein is one author of that book. He wasn't here, but E.J. Dionne and Thomas Mann were, and I would say I agree with 84% of their premises. I'll take that. (laughs) We'll take it. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. And now the spiel. 
In this space, I was thinking of bringing you something, I don't know, Medicaid expansion-y. Maybe about Maine. Definitely about Maine. As I was putting my thoughts to screen, it's part of my process, jot down notes to myself on the old iPhone, a weird thing began to happen. So the iPhone operating system has this glitch where it changes the letter I, the standalone letter I, you know, the personal pronoun I, to an A and like a ladder symbol, or to some people it shows up as an A and a question mark. Now, for a second I thought Apple was trying to get us to look inward, to think different, to be less solipsistic, all this, I think and I am and I want, and they were saying A... But then I realized it was just an F up, or as Apple's now calling it, a goat emoji in italics up. The symbol, I found out, is not an A. It's not a question mark. It's called Variation Selector 16. That's the symbol next to the A that they're using to replace the I. With this knowledge, I'm not going to spiel about Medicaid expansion. Today, the great state of Maine, home to weather-bitten fishermen, moose, a governor who's like Donald Trump but with less panache, became the 32nd state to accept Medicaid expansion. The notable thing is that Mainers did it by referendum. They stood up and said, Variation Selector 16 might not love big government or socialized medicine, but Variation Selector 16 just wants the government Variation Selector 16 has to work. Variation Selector 16 mean, come on. You see why I couldn't go ahead in this vein. R.E. Maine. It would not serve you, the audience. But as I was living with this Variation Selector 16 interlude, I began to have strong feelings, deep emotion, an abiding sense of rage. If you've not experienced the glitch firsthand, you may be thinking, yeah, yeah, I can see where that would be annoying. But if you have experienced it, you're probably right now lying in a heap on your sidewalk, willfully having auto-defenestrated at the utter, unbelievable, maddening frustration a variation selector 16. You might think, you know what? I type I a lot. But if you're like me, or as they may now soon say, variation selector 14, you type I a lot, a lot. And then you might think, I'm going to consciously remember not to type I, but then like an idiot, you type I. And then you're going to think, look, there's no way I'm going to type I again. And then you type I again. And then you say to yourself, all I need to do is type I and then hit the autocorrects. So I'm going to type I and you forget to hit the autocorrects. Maybe you think I'll just change everything to me thinks or I'm of the belief or this guy, but you don't. You never do. You could have pressed autocorrect, but instead, sorry, variation selector 16. Damn it. I mean, I was variation selector 16 was. No, I don't mean, I mean variation selector 16. Oh, all right. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. Variation selector 16. Am pissed off. Now there is a workaround in settings under a keyboard with a hashtag and a thing and a select and a swap out. And that worked for me for a while. And then it stopped working. And variation selector 16 for the life of me, variation selector 16, do not know why. Special interlude for everyone not experiencing the new iOS Let me make an analogy to something that you've been through. Take Murray over there. Murray can't find his keys. Murray's late. Murray's racking his brains. Murray's desperately trying to find his keys. 
Now, that experience, the experience right now that you're going through hearing about Murray looking for his keys, you know, it's relatable. You've been there. You've looked for your keys. You can sympathize, but you're not Murray. Your serotonin isn't spiking. Your anxiety isn't affected. You're watching the play unfold from a distance. And I get that right now at best. This is how you're experiencing my rant about Variation Selector 16. But I am Murray. Variation Selector 16 am Murray. Another analogy? Experiencing this thing with the eye is the difference between me telling you, hey, wouldn't you hate to have a paper cut and dip it in orange juice and actually having a paper cut and dipping it in orange juice? Yeah. So I know talking about Variation Selector 16 turns me into Murray especially a little later at the party where he's telling you the story about how he couldn't find his keys and you're standing there at a party nine miles away from Murray's house and you know Murray didn't carpool there or take an Uber or mass transit. So yeah, Murray, I guess you found your keys. And right now you're hearing me talk about this and you're like, yeah, it's like when the guy talks about his near-death experience. How'd it turn out? Oh yeah, that's you right in front of me telling me about your near-death experience. What I'm really saying is this, good job, Maine. You expanded Medicaid. It's wise, it's right, it's compassionate. As the good book says, Variation Selector 16 was a stranger and you welcomed me. Variation Selector 16 was naked and you clothed me. Variation Selector 16 was sick and you healed me. God damn it. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who woke up to find out Variation Selector 16 and the eyes of the world. Mary Wilson, Gist producer, will be the first to tell you Variation Selector 16M Woman, hear her roar. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He admonishes you to turn around, bright Variation Selector 16. The gist, you know, if loving you is wrong, then Variation Selector 16 doesn't want to be right. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.